1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Dervedevin, authors of The Library, A Fragile History, just released in 2021 by Profile Books. We're so excited to have Arthur and Andrew back on the NBN. I was uh, excited to speak with them about their previous project, The Bookshop of the World, a few months ago. This new project, The Library of Fragile History, seems in some ways like an expanded sequel. Uh, For our listeners who are meeting you for the first time, I wonder if you could give us uh, short introductions to yourselves and to your careers. Andrew,
2: can we start with you? Yes, certainly, Ryan. My name is Andrew Pettigree. I'm Professor of Modern History at the University of uh, of St. Andrews. I've written on the Reformation and now more recently on the History of Communication. Um, I'm I'm also the creator and director of the Universal Short Title Catalogue, uh, which attempts to be a survey of all books published in the first two centuries of print which is why I've spent so much time in libraries.
1: That's wonderful. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Arthur, uh, a little bit about yourself. Of course,
3: thanks, Ryan. Uh, well, I'm Arthur DeVadevin. I'm uh, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow uh, at the University of St. Andrews as well, where I also work uh, together with Andrew on the Universal Short Title Catalogue. And um, and really, I've been been doing that for a while now. I came, came to St. Andrews first as a postgraduate student uh, back in 2014. Got my PhD there as well, really specialising in the early history of uh, of printing, publishing, um, newspapers, advertising, and indeed book collecting. So, real pleasure to have been able to uh, put together this, uh, this this survey of of libraries for that reason.
1: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you both for being here. Well, this new book, The Library: A Fragile History, it tells quite a long story, doesn't it? I mean, it, we cover everything from Alexandria uh, to Alexa and, and a lot in between. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the selection and the organization process that goes into telling this long history of the library.
3: Um, that's, a, that's a great question, uh, uh, Brian. So I'll, I'll kick off uh, uh, with that one, if I may. Uh, really, you know, this is um, we, we wanted to, to to write this history as, as broad as possible, and it was it was a really really difficult process for that reason. Because every time we looked uh, at a library uh, and a story of a, of a book collection, whether it still survives or whether it's now been lost to us, uh, we we found so many fascinating details, and uh, ultimately we had to keep this to a, to a book of, of 400 uh, plus pages. And we were incredibly worried every single stage that someone would come up to us when the book was published and say, "Oh, I enjoyed that book, but I think you forgot one very important library that isn't mentioned. And really, you only say something about the Library of Congress on these three pages." So this was a, a sort of process we had to, we had in the in, in the back of our mind. Um, but we we moved on beyond and accepted it, and really chosen the libraries and the collectors we felt. Uh, symbolise a variety of different stages in the history of book collecting, from the Classical era, from the Great Library of Alexandria, all the way to the present day.
2: I think the inspiration, as as you've suggested, Ryan, came from our our previous work. Um, I've been now working on the the, the history of uh, uh, the book and reconstructing the first products of the printing press for over 20 years. And for the first 10 years of that, we spent an awful lot of time in the municipal libraries of France and then branched out through the rest of Europe. So Arthur and I worked out that between us, we think we've now worked in something like 300 special collections reading rooms. So we'd be in a position to write quite a good Michelin guide to the best special collections uh, in in the world. But I think the real inspiration for me uh, behind this was the work we did on 17th century Dutch collecting where we realized that every single one of the libraries that we were looking at through these catalogues of sales had had now ceased to exist. Hmm. And I think that inspired us to challenge the a uh, conventional narrative of library history, which concentrates on the most beautiful libraries in the world, the 10 great libraries of history, uh, which suggest um, the opposite of fragility. They suggest fixity and monument- monumentalism. And that really isn't the story we wanted to tell. We wanted to tell a story of, of creation, of collection, but also of dissolution and reconstruction, and this constant ebb ebb of the flow of libraries as they face different challenges: the challenge of uh, the Renaissance, the challenge of the Reformation, the challenge of the Enlightenment. And at each occasion, the library as an institution has to reinvent itself.
3: Andrew just mentioned uh, the fact that you know we didn't want to write a, a history of libraries that that goes all along the well trodden paths. At the same time, we wanted to start with the, the, the fabled Lost Library of Alexandria, um, precisely because this is a library that, that throughout human history has always held, held this sort of mythic appeal. And we see collectors in the, in the age of the Roman Empire, in the, in the medieval era, um, in the 19th century, and indeed today, like you mentioned, uh, Ryan, with the advent of Alexa and the great attempts by, by Google to digitize the world's books these constant attempts to, to create a sort of universal storehouse of knowledge. Um, but I think the real story of Alexandria is not the fact that, that we are, we're constantly striving towards this, but in a way that we're always failing to do so. And that ultimately, the fate of these great libraries is not to, 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 to stand for millennia, but actually um, to, to fall apart again.
1: You know, the subtitle that you've, you've both alluded to, this, this fragile history. It, it tells us so much about the kind of story that you've written. But as as I'm reading through the the book, it seems like there's two kinds of fragility that you you highlight in different episodes throughout. One has to do with the physical, material fragility. I mean, books are are prone to destruction especially by fire. They're they're quite flammable, unfortunately. Uh, but the other fragility has to do with something a bit more ethereal which you've both started to touch on. It's the interest in a particular library, a particular collection of books can change quite quickly from one generation to the next, can So I wonder if you could um, help us tease out a few episodes that really highlight there's two kinds of fragility, the, the physical destruction, and then the, I don't know what the right word is, the emotional or the spiritual um, destruction that a collection can go uh, from one generation to the next. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, to some extent, the history of the libraries is also um, inevitably a history of, uh, of different methods of, of, of transmission. So in the age of Alexandria, we have the papyrus scroll. And although papyrus is a very good writing medium, it is so vulnerable not only to fire, but also to damp. Mm-hmm. So requires um, recopying every couple of generations. So although uh, historians through the ages have tried to, to, to work out what happened to the Library of Alexandria. Really, it didn't need a more sophisticated explanation that the writer, that uh, it, it became a, a sort of tomb of forgotten books which just gradually rotted away. Uh, then you get the parchment, which actually is a very good uh, medium made, made, made of animal skins and it, and it is to some extent also resistant to fire it takes color very well but unfortunately it's very expensive because you don't get many pages of a book out of a single animal skin so then you get paper which is the sort of ultimate uh, uh, compromise it's 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 very um uh very um useful for writing on you can write on both sides in in Contradistinction to the parchment, it is foldable, which is very important, um, and it, it's fairly u- ubiquitous. And so paper is what really makes possible this writing and collecting revolution, which then finds its full uh, blossoming with the coming of, of, of printing. And I think it's the fact that books become so common that allows people to be whimsical in their choices. Right. And because a book is no longer quite so special, you can decide that it's no longer has a purpose in your library and create your own library. And what we find through all of history, of course, there are these tidal waves of new thought, like the Reformation, like the Enlightenment. But the, what really dooms the library is that no collection means quite so much to anybody as it does to its first creator. Mm -hmm.
3: That is exactly a problem that continues to to bedevil collectors. Um, Everyone thinks that what they are putting together as a library will be uh, a better collection, will be a collection that will be preserved for the future uh, because they have the right taste to to shape um, those of future generations. And this this continues continues to to be misguided. Um, with some pretty dramatic uh, results. I mean, Andrews already alluded here to the effects of the of the Reformation, uh, which comes uh, about seventy years after the invention of printing, which means that many of the sort of great Catholic monasteries of Europe have just been stocked up with the results of this of this great innovation. So that they've been uh, able to build up these wonderful uh, libraries which in the space of a few years in large parts of Germany and later, of course, also in the Low Countries uh, in, in, in Britain in Scandinavia are um, uh, entirely ransacked. Um, books are, uh, some books are, are, are stolen. Some books are deliberately uh, uh, destroyed uh, for, for the views they represent. But many of them, to be honest, are just sort of left to, left, um, to die in the cold and the rain. And the mud, and and to to be thrown out on the street, we have lots of
0: examples of these books being being recycled. So, in in the Swiss city of Zurich,
3: for example, the uh, the bookbinders of that city were still a hundred years after the Reformation using Catholic manuscripts as waste paper to support their bindings. Hmm. And you know that sadly is is the fate of so many of the collections we we discuss in our books. These collections which have been built up with immense effort, immense devotion, and, and such love. You know, this is sadly, 100 years later, um, where many of their remnants go.
2: Yes, um, our own reverence for antiquity, uh, the, the cult of incunabula, the first uh, printed book of the 15th century, is really quite a recent thing. It's only really with um, targeted collecting in the 18th century that people begin to value texts uh, for, for their antiquity rather than for the words written upon them. Uh, and Arthur came up with some most wonderful data that uh, the monasteries in Germany were, up until the beginning of the 18th century, still continuing to put out their earliest printed books for the benefit of the uh, bookbinders or the suitcase makers and, uh, and it was only when collectors came actually largely from Britain in search of Incunabula that they thought, hmm, we're selling ourselves a bit short here and began to ask the sort of serious prices for 15th century books that we now associate uh, with, with market. And this is why so many uh, libraries don't have all that many uh, Books from the first age of print, at least from the point where they were first collected, because it was absolutely routine that if a second or a third or fourth edition came along, the earlier book would be disposed of and and replaced.
3: Really, yeah, one of the parts that's also one of the uh, elements that's really important in our story is that this dispersal is not always necessarily a sad thing. Uh, obviously, there are we document cases of, of willful. Uh, destruction, which uh, are, are always always very emotional, but at the same time we see that you know the common fate of many libraries is to is to enter the home of a of a professional collector, say a minister of the church or a a lawyer or a physician, and throughout their lifetime they collect the books that they need for their profession, that they find valuable and useful. You know, when they die, um, their children or their family may not have the same use for those books. So the actual dispersal of that library to find new homes, say, among the colleagues of, of this particular collector, is actually in some ways also quite a joyous thing and something in which books continue to be used and continue to be valued rather than you know sit on the shelves unwanted and unloved, which if that goes on for a couple of centuries, often books are stored in such a bad way. That um, their value has 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 totally disappeared again. So in some ways, dispersal has a lot of uh, benefits too.
1: You know, as modern readers, we tend to think of libraries as as more of a public or an institutional collection. You know, we think of of the academic libraries, or then later the the public libraries that might be sponsored by a government or, or you know a, a national government or even a local municipality. Uh, But one of the things that you highlight throughout your book is how crucial private collectors are for, um, for the, the various iterations of libraries as they gather through. I'm thinking particularly of some of your comments on how (laughs) there are so many libraries that were founded as buildings without any budget for purchasing books. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how that the, this, relationship between the private collector and the, the public institution um, have, have continued in this dance in the long history of the library.
2: Well, can we today imagine a situation where a professor in a university like myself could have more books than the university library? I think No, we couldn't. That would be absolutely inconceivable by a scale of 100. But that was not unusual Mm -hmm. in the 17th century university uh, library world where the university collection, because it depended, as you said, uh, wholly on acquisitions because very few, uh, wholly on donations because very few libraries had an acquisitions budget. Really, the struggle to find a suitable model for communal ownership of books is the thread that runs through our our, our book and and, and is responsible for so many failures in the the efforts to create a public library. Um, The Romans couldn't do it. They didn't really come up with a true understanding of what a, a, a library was for. Uh, And so the book was basically relegated to uh, a thousand years of essentially private institutional um, uh, ownership, the monasteries, which had very little public access at all. Then we have a generation of parish libraries and of university libraries with very few books. Uh, And it's really only in the 18th century, there's a range of other much, much more uh, successful models are beginning to be developed, um, such as the subscription library, where a group of friends get together Mm -hmm. and build a collection for their own use. And these grow and become very significant, uh, you could say quasi-public institutions. But the true age of the public library is, is... is vanishingly small in in the history of libraries. And I think that's also a message we needed to get over um, because the current debates about the, the, the health and future of the public library suggest that um, this is how it has always been and how it should also always be. But in fact, it really wasn't.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
3: What I would also um, add to this is the fact that a lot of libraries we now look upon as great public institutions, for example, the great research libraries in the United States of America, they are all based on uh, private collections and really on the collections of one particular individual. Thinking here of the the Morgan Library in in New York, for example, or the Folger Library in Washington, D.C., Huntington in California. You know, these are, um, these are collections that required immense wealth to put together. And the only reason that they survive as, as public collections is because their, their founders were so incredibly wealthy. They were not just able to amass all these books, but then to endow uh, the building in which they, they housed them with uh, substantial amounts of money to, to, last, um, to last several more centuries, so to speak. So and, and this is the case with many other institutions, too, with many of the great university libraries, uh, with many national libraries. I'm thinking here of the British Museum Library, uh, which is now um, uh, been split off into the British Library, which was essentially founded by one bequest from a uh, an English collector called Hans Sloan. That was then because of the magnanimity of this gift that other um British dignitaries didn't want to be seen to be left behind so also started to add their books and their funds to this one great collection so in that sense you know this sort of um, uh, personal pride and that sense of competition and wanting to contribute something to the to the public good underpins a lot of um, the, the the great libraries we look on as Uh, as community resources.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. But if we look a a little further back, look at the university libraries of the um, 15th, 16th, 17th century, there are great dangers in that sort of method of accumulation. The medieval university curriculum is such that it really only covers a relatively limited range of texts. So it's very likely that if you rely on donations from from students and from um, university professors, you'll get multiple copies of the same books given to you. And that's indeed the the case. The result is that uh, university libraries in the 17th century often get their only acquisitions budget from selling off duplicates from their own collection uh, in order to uh, raise some money, and so people always look at the Bodleian Library as the sort of epitome of the new library, and it's a, fa- a fabulous model, but no one follows it. Bodley very sensibly appoints a distinguished um, scholar as li- his first librarian, so the, so the development of the collection is well. Uh, curated. He also provides a very substantial sum uh, as an endowment, so they'll be able to continue to to buy. And this is just not the case anywhere else in Europe. So when we're looking at private collecting in the 17th century, we're finding people who have private collections of 10,000, 15,000 copies, absolutely unthinkable two centuries later before the invention of print. But these collections are often cycled back by their grateful descendants into the general market rather than given to another institution. Now, because the Vodlian Library was such a a fine collection, it was a magnet for such donations. So it really is a case of to him who hath shall more be given.
1: I'm curious if you might be willing to share... Um, some of the things that most surprised you um just little little snippets or anecdotes that most surprised you as you were compiling all of the the wonderful stories that go into this volume for for example I was shocked to discover that the idea of storing books vertically on shelves was actually a really recent phenomenon in the history of libraries so I mean that there's there's so many things like that that come out to that Throughout the the book, that and and speaking of the Bodleian, that they they sold their first copy of uh, the first folio of Shakespeare and had to buy it back uh, a couple of centuries later at, you know, almost an infinitely um, inflated value. So there's just tons of little nuggets like that throughout. And I'm curious, what were two or three of the things that most just alarmed you? made you laugh or made you perhaps cry as you were um, collecting your, your stories?
3: Well, thanks. Uh, thanks. That's a good question, Ryan. I mean, there's, there's indeed lots of them. I'll just pick a couple that come to mind. And, and one of them is, is something we've, we've, we've already touched upon. And that is really this idea that, you know, it's actually in the places where books are most abundant and collectors are most abundant that the public or communal libraries struggle the most. And this is something very interesting. You can test when you look at how uh, books and libraries are valued when they go with the um, uh, the, the Pilgrim Fathers over the Atlantic uh, to, the, to their first colonies uh, in, in North America, where they are so they are so far away from the great centers of book production and other libraries that people really. Band together very quickly and say, you know, what books have you got? What have what have I got on my collection? And you see, that's that, that's sort of the, the early sort of parish and community libraries do extremely well in in those communities. Mm. And indeed, when people die, all books are very carefully recycled in in a family because you you know all those books came over for a reason. So you don't want any of them to be left behind or just go- going to waste, as indeed many of them did in in a place like Paris or London or or Amsterdam, where Libraries and books are, are everywhere. And the second one uh, I would add is the, the longevity of uh, one of the sort of great uh, institutions of libraries in this period. And that's a circulating library. So libraries that are, that are run, um, uh, run by booksellers, uh, run for a profit, for commerce, where you as an individual can get a subscription to, um, uh, to borrow books. And you can borrow so many books per week or per year uh, and generally for very, very small fees. Now these emerged in the in the in the 18th century and really had their sort of um, um, heyday in the in the late 19th century uh, in England with the great empire of uh, W H. Moody. Um, and um, but we, we discovered that even after Mudy's empire uh, sort of collapsed in the early 20th century, uh, the circulating library survived in, in many other forms, not least in the in the form of uh, Boots the chemist with the Boots Book Lovers Library. Uh, which really only went uh, down, I think, in the 1960s. So again, it, it shows you that there's some types of libraries uh, and book collecting that have a much, much longer history than you you think uh, would first be the case.
2: Yes, um, uh, I I think that's a wonderful example of you start um, you start writing a book like this, and it's amazing what you learn uh, as you go along. And I have to say. Uh, The extent to which circulating libraries like uh, the Boots Library for um, uh, uh, ladies who uh, like to choose their books in a certain degree of privacy um, and the Tuppany libraries for which served a more uh, working class urban um, community who liked to have recommendations of what to read, but found the public library too intimidating to go to. I, I'm just surprised how the, the whole circulating library story has almost been written out of the script. And I think that's partly because uh, public librarians found these circulating libraries very challenging because public libraries saw a duty to improve the taste right. of their readers and so would not necessarily get them give them what they wanted. So they thought these libraries which um, were uh, where the stock was shaped by the taste of the readers, rather than trying to improve them all the time, they found those very threatening. So mm-hmm. they're very much underwritten part of the story. And I'm very happy we've been able to retrieve these um, from the silence in which they've, they've been enshrined. Um, if I was to give two examples of things that really surprised me. I would say, first of all, bring it in, in, into the latter part of the book, the horror with which um, uh, American public opinion uh, received the rather ined- inevitable news that the libraries of uh, public libraries of Germany would have to be cleared out after the war to remove all the Nazi titles. Now, this was largely because when in 1933 the Nazis... Uh, staged the great book burnings, American public opinion was very roused by this. Um, and so when the occupying forces took over in 1945 and started cleansing the German libraries, um, there was an immediate and surprisingly hostile reaction in America. Okay. So in order had to go round from the occupying forces, these books should be done away with quietly and no burning. They were just to be carted off to the uh, pulping machines. The other thing which really surprised me um, uh, as I worked on it was how deadly the invention of the paperback was for public libraries. Paperbacks created new generations of collectors. The Six minute book was immediately popular, and these, of course, were not the Um, penny dreadfuls and shockers that uh, offended Victorian sensibilities, but, you know, good modern novels and non-fiction titles, which had a very broad appeal. But it was virtually impossible for the the public library to follow um, into this market, uh, because paperbacks, particularly the wartime paperbacks, which were printed on very poor quality paper, it was impossible for them to be um, bought for a public library because they just simply couldn't stand a repeated borrowing and, and hard usage. So uh, now people could develop their own uh, collection of books paying about a 15th of the cost of a first edition uh, hardback novel of the sort that the public libraries had to get in for their clientele. So just as the, the public library movement was was reaching maturity, This was something of a hammer blow from which it didn't really ever get over until it started uh, in the 1960s, accessioning the sort of romance novels, Mills and Boone, Harlequin, that that people wanted to come and get.
3: And what this just tells you as well is that really you cannot separate the story of libraries and of book collecting um, from a means of book production. So you know when the paperback comes in, that has massive implications uh, for the library. When uh, when paper uh, uh, is invented, um, that has massive implications uh, for 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 library and indeed for the amount of books you can begin to gather. And therefore, like you, you mentioned earlier, Ryan, as well, for, for means of storage. If you have a very small collection of books, it's much easier to keep those in uh, in in chests to carry them around and keep them safe on the lock and key but if you've got 10,000 books you can't be keeping those in chests all around the house and similarly today with the the, the advent of of ebooks uh, and indeed earlier in the century already with alternative means of uh, of textual storage like like microfilm or cd roms all of those have implications for for libraries and especially for institutions like public libraries which constantly have to think you know who are our users if I collect books for myself, I can, I can pick exactly what I want and what I don't want. Public libraries have this real challenge of saying, you know, who is our audience? Who's going to walk through the door? Will they be wanting access to ebooks? Will they be wanting access to DVDs? Will they be wanting access to paperbacks or hardbacks? With every sort of new form of, of, of book creation in that sense, you're adding another layer of decisions about what are we paying for? What are we keeping? And how are we going to store it all? And when do we decide? And this is a question that that faces all librarians who uh, work in, in in public services. When do we get rid of things? Because you can't keep everything forever. And if you talk to any librarian, and we had the fortune um, to talk to to talk to many during during our research, you realise that this process of weeding, as it's called, is incredibly common. You know, again, this is not a, a process of of active malicious destruction, but simply saying. Um, this is our budget, this is our space, and this hasn't been used for a while. So how do we move on from that? So these are these are real questions uh, that you can't get around
1: that's That's absolutely right, Arthur. And you know that that does become this unifying theme throughout the the book isn't it? is is the way technology the, the story of the library is always um, in a dance with each technological wave. And how that's changing what the library is, um, what the new threats are, and what the future of the library um, may or may not end up being. Um, I know that it's it's a, it's an unfair question to ask historians, but um, is there a future for the library? Um, wh- what do you see? Did you touch a little bit in your postscript on um, how uh, digitization is really... Um, has presented new challenges. Um, you know, we're still on the at the end of the third or fourth, I don't remember how many waves we're in now of the COVID pandemic as we're recording this, um, which has perhaps accelerated some of these trends. So, so what do you see as the future for the library?
2: Well, one thing that my um, previous book on the invention of uh, news and uh, the book in the Renaissance taught me is that prediction is always wrong. When it comes to new technology, Mm -hmm. Um, we had a lot of fun with a very good natured prediction uh, tool called the Extinction Timeline. And according to the Extinction Timeline, the last library was due to uh, close its doors in 2019, Mm -hmm. uh, along with uh, butcher shops and free parking. Well, I can tell you that there's still 2.6 million libraries worldwide. Uh, there's excellent bookshops shops in uh, Richmond, uh, North Yorkshire, where we found um, three open at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning on our way to York for the York uh, Book Fair. And I can also tell you that um, there's plenty of uh, free parking in, in Scotland. So if you're, if you're worried about your car getting towed while you're going to the library, well, relocate is my, my advice. Um, but what I think there is is, uh, not a crisis of the library or indeed a crisis of the book, which has been, book has been meant to be dead now since the 1930s when microfilm came along. Um, and I can guarantee that 90% of the copies of this book, which sell, will sell in, 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 uh, in, in hard copy rather than in various forms of e-readers. Uh, What I do think there is, is there's a crisis of the branch library in the UK. Um, If you look at the UK's public library system, um, the main library in the city or town seems to be in pretty good health, not least because they've often adapted their facilities to take account of new needs uh, like computers and new preferences like coffee shops. You can't do that with tiny branch libraries. And as their clientele ages, and um, the number of people attending goes down, and the number of people attending for to read books goes down even further, it's very difficult because these books often have only four or five thousand books on the shelves, uh, and and people in who use branch libraries have as diverse tastes of those who use the main library. So, I think there is a genuine problem with these um, uh, branch libraries, not least that the council officials who have to take these difficult decisions are always regarded as the enemy, as the Philistines, whereas the campaigners campaigning to keep them open that we talked to readily acknowledged that they were not themselves users of these branch libraries. They were simply fighting for a principle needed in their view maintaining uh, because libraries are such a cultural totem they're a cultural totem of the health of a civilization Um, but it doesn't mean that the network and how they're delivered can't adapt
3: and keeping all of that in mind uh, one of the other things we should we should be aware of is that bookshops, which have also uh, previously been predicted uh, uh, to go extinct sometime in the near future, are actually doing very well at the moment. Uh, and certainly even, even through the pandemic, bookshops have been doing well. So perhaps it is time to return to the circulating library and see if there's an, some booksellers can, can become interested again in offering that as a service. Because I do think that in some ways offers a solution to some of the problems that the, the branch library is facing, just in the, the diversity of choice that people expect nowadays, and that is a real result too of the of the digital um, uh, innovation and, and revolution. You know, we can we can look anything up online uh, and, and expect to find it, uh, any text we want access to. But you know, that's not something not something a branch library uh, can offer. At the same time, I don't think that the solution for the, for the library will be to just you know make everything digital and we'll all be happy. That has serious implications for, for the way in which uh, people consume books. Um, while at the same time, we also need to, you know, if, if, if historians can do anything, it's it's offer some warnings about the past. And one of the warnings of, of previous technological inventions like microfilm or, uh, or indeed the floppy disk, uh, this idea that it, just because we've got something new doesn't mean it's actually all that much better than the old, or at least it, it, it will have its own flaws. So the idea that if we can just, you know, uh, put everything on, on an e-book and get rid of the old, you know, what happens when electricity
2: uh, is shut down? What, what do you do then with your all your e-book subscriptions? I've just bought and I'm reading what is really a rather good book on uh, the relationship between Britain and, and, and Germany since the 19th century. And it was uh, published, I think, in 2005. And I wanted to look up some of the references, scuttled through to the back and found that the author had embraced modernity to the extent that instead of taking up print time, he said, if you want the footnotes, go to this website. Now, of course, um, not very many years later, the link to the website is broken. The footnotes are unobtainable and the book is thus Uh, lamed by this lack and that's the problem with modernity you don't know which bits of it uh, to embrace Uh, and a certain conservatism in book culture is to that extent helpful because you don't necessarily find yourself going down wrong tracks the book is an extraordinarily versatile and uh, useful technology if you think how much more satisfying it is to have a printed text in hand and how much better you um, you remember what you've read if you have some uh, visual signals as well rather than scrolling through text after all the scroll was what was um, what was uh, you know it's ancient technology and going back to something which manifestly was clumsy and unsuitable uh reinventing the scroll seems to be the worst thing you can bring to book technology.
1: Well, this has been such a delight, and I'm so tempted to continue the conversation for hours longer, but you've been so generous with your time already. Um, before we say goodbye, I wonder if you might um, be willing to give us any teasers on uh, what are you working on next? Can we be looking for uh, a history of the used bookshop? from you both in the the immediate future, or or what's what's on the horizon?
2: Well, while you're waiting for your book to come out, um, as it goes through the production stages, that does actually give you quite a lot of time. And uh, so I've been uh, working away on my next book, and this is to be a study of books and war. Books, Libraries in War, and it's to some extent uh, inspired by what we found of the, the, what, the fate of libraries in wartime. But this is not just a book about destruction. It's a book about how books incubate warfare and the services they provide to various elements of the population, the troops, the uh, prisons of war, but also on the home front. And also how books are, necess- are necessarily the munitions of war as well, providing the information, the ideologies, the understanding of your uh, adversaries. Um, so this is a, it, it's a great project. I'm really enjoying it. And I hope that will be ready for everybody in 2023.
1: Thanks, Andrew. And how about you, Arthur?
3: Well, uh, I've, um, I'm have i sort of taking a slight turn away with the next project from, um, uh, from books, and this is really, uh, it's in the very early stages, but this is partially inspired by uh, uh, being a foreigner in Britain, uh, someone who does who does love Britain a great deal. Uh, but I sort of feel that in the British historiography, the role of, of foreigners and outsiders has been rather underplayed. So I'm currently uh, conceiving a, a, a history of uh, British culture and British society through uh, the prospect of of foreign invasion and and foreign contributions uh, and new um, uh, political movements, uh, new tastes, new languages, um, and really to see how that has contributed a great deal to the formation of modern Britain. So that's early stages. So perhaps not 2023, but I'll be I'll be working away.
1: Well, those both sound like um, riveting projects, and I can't wait to have you both back and talk with you about them as they um, come to press. Well, this has been a conversation with Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Dervedevin, co-authors of The Library, A Fragile History. You can get your copy now from Profile Books. Arthur and Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. You can visit newbooksnetwork.com and browse our catalog of over 10,000 interviews with books ranging across a wide range of interests. We have quite an online library for you to visit all about books for book lovers, young and old. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.